Okay, fine. A little short in class because of all the announcements we had, but let's, let's dive right into it. We were discussing last week the creation of the first written oral Torah. Yep. The oral Torah, which was always given over um, orally from generation to generation, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi decided that time had come to make sure that the, the bulk of Jewish tradition should be put down in writing so the Torah should not be left. Now actually, something that we did not discuss last class and I want to just mention it quickly, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, by doing so, technically did something that was prohibited because it is written very clearly in, in the Talmud, although it was written later, but it was a law that only the written Torah given to Moshe and the written prophets can be put in writing. The oral tradition has to stay oral. And you're not allowed, you're not allowed to read a Parsha out of memory. You have to read a Parsha by looking into it and vice versa. The oral tradition cannot be put into writing, at least not as a teaching. As I discussed also last week, individual rabbis had their, so to say, personal notes. But that's like personal notes, like you were taking a class. That, that's okay, but not as a way of teaching. So the, how did Rabbi Dahanasi commit such a transgression? He's a religious person, of course. He's a big rabbi. He's a big tzaddik. So how does he go against the law, against halacha? And here comes something which might sound surprising, but there is a verse, a verse in Tehillim that says, Et la sot lashem, when the time comes to act for God, the Torah has to be breached, has to be disrespected. Meaning, there can be times in which for the sake of God and for the purpose of Torah, Torah has to be put aside punctually on certain things. Now that rule, of course, is an extremely tricky rule because it's not anyone who feels that he's acting for God and he's acting for Torah that gets to decide what gets to be done and when. They were different people. I'm not saying that they had bad intentions, but over the generations that took liberty with that saying, Thing. When the time comes to act for God, for Hashem, well, you can't be picky on too many halachas. It comes to mind an exchange that the Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, had with a person who said the Jewish communities should organize more like mixed balls and mixed dancing and events and parties between youngsters so that girls and boys of the Jewish community should meet and shouldn't be more assimilation. So the Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak said, sure, it's a good thing to create opportunities of meeting, but it has to be done in a kosher way, not in a way that halacha finds not modest, not tznius. So he said, oh, Rabbi, when there's a fire burning, you don't start, you, you don't, you're not picky with how clear the water that you're throwing on the fire is. There's a fire burning, you just take whatever you can as water, even if it's muddy water, and you just throw it on the fire. Basically, he was like saying to Rabbi Sivitzhak, oh, come on, 
a little bit in the tone of et la sot l'ashem. When the moment has come to act for God, you know, you can't keep all the halachas. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak answered, he said, yeah, you're 100% right, provided that you don't pour petrol on the fire. Because then you're only making it worse. So now person says, so how do I know when it's muddy waters or when it's petrol? That's what you need, big grub on him. It's not every person on his hunch and what he feels that gets to decide, oh, this is just muddy water. No, sometimes what you think is muddy water is actually petrol. Because you're going to make people do things which are not allowed, that will not bring them closer to Judaism. It will be, it will be a pretend. And although this is not at all the topic of this class, um, nevertheless, and I, I, I don't want to expand on it, but the fact is that although um, Reformed Judaism and even Conservative Judaism also came a lot of times out of those kind of reasonings of let's make it accessible. You can't be so picky. The, you know, people are not interested in a religion anymore. People assimilate whether you like it or not. So make them at least give them something to hold on to. Uh, because if not, so et la sot la shem. So same kind, they felt that it was the same kind of reasoning. The moment has come to do things for God. Look, you see other big rabbis also did certain things that by the book they were not supposed to, but they took the liberty when they felt that there was urgency and it was for God's sake. But when you look at it carefully, and as I told you already once, the saying of Lord Bolingbroke, uh, English Lord, who once said that history is philosophy with proofs. You remember that? I'm, okay, I'm going to refrain from using the word impossible. So I'm not going to use it, but it's almost impossible. Probable. Yeah, but improbable to levels that I would want to use the word impossible. But since I did not actually make statistics, so I'm not going to use the words. But to find today a Jew who belongs to the reform movement and who can say, I belong to the reform movement, my father belonged to the reform movement, my grandfather belonged to the reform movement. Because if the grandfather was in the reform movement, the grandchild is not within Judaism or not attached to Jewish communities. It does not bring people closer. It allows, it's a one generation thing, eventually two generation thing, to give some kind of good consciousness of I'm Jewish somehow, but it's not bettering. When the verse says the time has come to act for God, meaning that is something that although it is a prohibited thing, but you will see that it will bring something better out in the long run. Not give a person or a one generation person a good conscience. No, that, that doesn't count, sorry to say. A good conscience, that's not acting for God. That's just giving a person a good conscience. Acting for God, I mean, it helped Judaism. It actually helped Judaism. And a lot of times people, that's exactly what Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok said. A lot of times different ideas that supposedly were supposed to help Judaism, it didn't help Judaism at all. It helped it, private people to feel good about themselves, but it didn't help Judaism. It didn't make people more, it didn't make Judaism become more. Whereas when you come back, I don't even know why I should compare those kind of things, when you take Rabbi Yudha Hanasi, 
Yeah, sure. He did something which was not allowed to put down in writing. But hello, look at the Jewish bookshelves. So although he did not do something that was in line of Torah, yeah, but Torah is the winner here. Torah didn't lose from it. It's maybe, it's like a temporary loss, but a big gain. And then, if it's like a temporary loss, a big gain, by the way, that is the reason the Talmud asks, why do we desecrate Shabbos? To save a person's life? Who says that that person is more important than Shabbat? I know, don't be shocked by the question. I'm still relaying to you the question. And the answer of Talmud is, desecrate one Shabbat so that that person will uphold and respect a lot of other Shabbat to come. Meaning it's as if Shabbat itself wants to be desecrated because its desecration will eventually will be its respect. Because if you respect me now, well, then this person dies. So this person never does Shabbat anymore. That's short-sighted. Where if you desecrate me today, says Shabbat, sure, okay, one Shabbat desecrated, but in the long run, how many more Shabbat will I have gained from it? It's a, it's in military, in military strategy, it's called a tactical retreat. You know what that is? It's a tactical retreat. Oh, they're retreating. No, they're not. They're attacking. No, they're retreating. Yeah, you think they're retreating, but they're attacking. It's a tactical retreat. It allows to regroup, to find new position of a soul, and to come again. It's not a retreat. It's no white flag. And that would be the biggest mistake of the enemy. They yay, we won. They're running. No, they're not. They're not running anywhere. They're just regrouping and reorganizing. And they, so, so too, in Judaism, there are tactical retreats. As individuals, you, Sarah, Amy, me, Sarah, you, like any one of us, we don't get to make those tactical retreats. It's not, those are like kind of Supreme Court decisions in Judaism. It's not an individual person to say, ah, I'll make some negotiations with halacha, tactical retreat, I won't do this now, and then I'll do more later. Nah, you don't get to make those calls. This is the general-in-chief. This is like the uh, like CENTCOM, you know, like Central Command, that makes those kind of calls. Not, not, not a private on, on the battlefield that decides those kind of things. Okay, now let's move on. Rabbi Yudanasi finishes the Mishnah, like I told you. He wrote it because he knew that more difficult times were going to come eventually. We spoke about that at length last week, yes? Sorry, what year did he finish it? Around the year 200, 190, 200. We don't have an exact, we don't have an exact date, by the way. Um, Rabbi Yudanasi, he writes it in a city called Tsipori. Tsipori is a city in, in Galilee that you can still visit today, vestiges of it. It's in a, it's in a national park, so it's, it's a paid entrance to come to the whole domain. Um, actually, they, they were in the, there are caves that were found there with burial tombs, and with almost certainty, the, the, the burial tomb of Rabbi Yudhanas himself is identified over there. I said almost certainty because some 
some discuss it in one two place his burial site in another place, but still, the, the consensus is that he was buried in Sipori. Sipori, by the way, interesting choice. Sipori was not Borough Park. Sipori was not Williamsburg or Quarren Heights. Sipori was not uh, Lakewood or you name it. Sipori was, yeah, maybe Miami, maybe Chicago. What I mean by that, yes, religious communities, but you can't say that you live in a religious city. Even the place where there is a religious neighborhood, it's like it's 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 not big enough to create a bubble. Whereas like Borough Park or like Brooklyn, oh, you can have a bubble. Like, are we in America? No, nothing so. Uh, like it's a bubble life, okay? Uh, I don't know Chicago enough. In a little bit, no, you can No, even the the like religious neighborhoods in Chicago, they're not big enough to create this bubble. They still know that they live in the general society around them, like with non-Jews or not religious Jews, etc., etc., etc. There's no, there's no bubble. So if you want Sipari, was that kind of places? Tzipori was not Mayasha Arim. Tzipori, no, not at all. It was not Geula or in like from, from, not at all. Why, why, why do I say that surprising? Because there were such places. Tiveria was, there were places who were like this. Completely Jewish-Jewish. Tzipori was a mixed Jewish-Roman city. And interestingly enough, that's where Rabbi Yudhanasi settled. That's where he wrote the Mishnah. In that place, uh, where which also means if you have a Jewish slash Roman city, it also means that a lot of the Jews that are there are maybe not the most um, religious. Let's put it this way, because like the more people of the world, th- that that always existed. It's always existed throughout the 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 ages. That as soon. As back, I, by the way, our generation is a novelty, and especially the Chuva movement that started in the 60s, and the fact that we are here today, you all of you, together with me in Yerushalayim, this possibility of establishing a real religious um, lifestyle, all the, although, albeit, completely within the general society without creating a bubble. That is a novelty of our generation. Once upon a time, it used, up until now, it used to be that as soon as Jews somewhere were open to the wide world, it came with a religious and spiritual cost. Uh, like everywhere, you can see this very strongly. You can see that in, in Europe, okay, the Jews of Paris or Berlin or Frankfurt, well, Okay, whereas the Jews of the Shtetlach of Poland, oh, which like, oh, they are like the real thing. And as soon as you had to do with Jews who were in the big cities, eh, depends, yeah, so-so. Same thing also went in North Africa. North Africa, Jews of Casablanca, of Algiers, of Tunis, of the the capitals. Eh, Once you went a little bit south, inland, like... Like where Baba Sali came from, Tafilalet, the southern region of Morocco, etc. That was like, whoa. It was like ultra, ultra orthodox, even by the Sephardi Jews. Um, 
See, I, I say even because usually it's not assimilated. Usually Sephardi Jews are perceived as being like more, more like on board with general society. Well, that's a perceived thing. Truth is that there were a lot of love Sephardi communities, but they're less known now, who were more inland, who were 100% orthodox, orthodox, very, very strongly orthodox. So again, Rabbi Yudha Nasi writes the Mishnah in Tzipori, and according to the accepted opinion, that's also where he's buried, and you can bury, you can visit his Zion, his tombstone, in, in there, and you go into a cave, it's, it's, it's arranged, because it's part, as I said, of, an, of, of a place. Now, what happened afterwards? Well, he had a, he had a big, he had two main disciples. You could say, like, really, his right hands. Two right hands. Um, one was Rav Chia. Okay, so Rav Chia was what the was literally his like almost his assistant, his PA, uh, but on a very high level. Actually, it is said that the actual writing of the Mishnah was done by Rav Chia. Rav Yuda was more on in a supervisory and and deciding capacities. The actually writing it down. Huh? Can you write it? Yeah. In Hebrew or in English? Uh, Hebrew. Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's Chia. What's that, Amy? You were still in my Yanat a couple of years ago. Yeah, I was. In, no, in Kataman. Yeah. Yeah. I was there for like three and a half weeks. Okay. Do you remember the names? It was the big street, was Chizkiyahu. Yeah. And then the small street. We lived on Chizkiyahu. Yeah, and the small street where the gate was. That street was called Ravchia. Oh, really? Ravchia. Because named after him. He's also called sometimes Ravchia Hagadol. Oh, yeah. the, the great Ravchia. He was the successor of Rabbi Yudanasi after Rabbi Yudanasi passed away. But Rabbi Yudanasi had another pupil who was also a master in his own right, eventually. And this other pupil, actually, his name initially was. Abba Katina. Wait, is this his son-in-law? No. No, no, that's someone else. Yeah. Yeah, no, his brother-in-law, you mean. Yeah, yeah. That's, we'll talk about him in a moment. Okay. Uh, this other disciple, actually his real name was Abba Katina, which means small father, which also usually means that he was of small stature. Uh, it could be with the nickname. <laughs> Uh, but afterwards, people will just name him because of his stature. We'll call him Rav. Rav. <laughs> Whereas Rabbi Yudah Nasi will be called Rabbi. Rabbi, which means my master. Rav, which means master, a master. Rav, aka Abakatina, will leave Israel. Yes. Yeah, actually, no, Rabbi. What, Rav and Rabbi or Rav and Rabbi? Rav and Rabbi. Rabbi in English. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same yeah, yeah. Rav is a little bit more. Because today you use Rabbi also for a congregation, someone who just reads the Psalms, etc. So the Rabbi is going to start the prayer. Today we use the word Rabbi even when technically it's like you mean the Chazan, the cantor. Uh, people say the Rabbi. So, in, in halacha, a rav is someone who is like a master. Uh, 
So Rav will decide to move to Babylon. The reasons initially, we don't know. He'll go to Babylon, back to Babylon. But that will, he going to Babylon will bring with him the Mishnah and will start the rabbinical schools in Babylon, giving later on the Talmud. But before I discuss the Talmud, this will be, Rav will be the one that will bring the Mishnah to Babylon. But before I talk about what's going to happen in Babylon, I want to close the chapter of Eretz Yisrael. So we're going to have like two cameras, two zooms. So I want to first finish off what is happening in Israel. And we'll close off the chapter of Israel. And then we'll go back in time to when Rav came to Babel and, and explained that. So I'm giving you a, um, a sheet here. It has a timeline and also a map. It has a, a, quite some information on it. So. From the top, top of the sheet, the timeline, you see a secular calendar, year 170, that was the leadership of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Hanasi the Prince, that we discussed last week. And around the year 200, the Mishnah was completed around this time, edited by Rav Chia, as mentioned. I, talked, I discussed with you last week that uh, the Romans became like more friendly with the Jews. Nevertheless, the Jews now live mainly in northern Israel in Galilee. In the year 219, Rav settled in Babylon, Babel, founded the yeshiva of Surah. Now, I, I, I take your attention one moment to the maps that are at the bottom of the page. So the, the, the first map, the top one, you have all the places where the Sanhedrin, we know that they had their siege, their, their seat. So one is called, okay, besides the one that is at the bottom, which is Yavne, which is in the Judean country, afterwards everything goes to the north. So you have, going from the left to the right, clockwise, Usha, Shefaram. Huh, interesting. Ever heard that name? The street. Yeah. Yes. By way, did you pay attention? You have Shefaram, mm. you have Tzfaz. Mm -hmm. What's the street over here? No, no, but here next door. There's like a theme Zipori. in different names. Sipari huh? is here? Yes. Sipari. Sipari. Right after Tzad. Right after Tzad. Right it, it's the names of the places San Adrian said. Like there's, there's a neighborhood where it's like exactly. all judges. Yes, exactly. So this is, you could say, the Sanhedrin neighborhood or the Galilean neighborhood. Okay. No, no, this is already another theme. That's a different thing. Huh? Also another, another theme. Uh, actually, it is a city. I don't know. I don't know. Ivan Sapir, it might be a city. I'm not sure. So there was Shfaram, which is a city. Tveria, okay. Tveria, you know of. Um, it's like interesting also up until today, a kind of resort city. Actually, you didn't, it, used, it started as a resort city. Um, Tveria is initially a Roman city created by the Romans. And they named the city after the emperor at that time. 
Let me see if you will recognize the emperor. Hi. Tiberius. Tiberius. An emperor. The city is called up until today Tiberia. Tiberia, Tiberius. That's a, that was a Roman emperor. Yeah. Where did the holy city names come from then? Spot? What's Spot? I have no idea what Spot means. But it, listen, a lot of cities, I don't know what they mean. Um, so I, do I, what does Shafaram mean? Where did the holy cities come from then? The names? No, or the, the fact they're holy. Oh, the fact that they're holy is because of their history. Svas is holy because of, of B, the Sanhedrin was there, and also afterwards Kabbalah was established there, was revealed there. That's where it became holy. And Hebron is a holy city. And Tveri also is because it's a place of Sanhedrin. Our old one teacher told us that, I mean, also, especially like in the case of Tveria, that they were pretty much like designated as holy cities because when Jews were coming back here in like the 1800s, 1900s, that they were really poor and they lived in their cities and so they needed to get money from people like from abroad. So whenever people would fundraise, they would be like, Okay, I hear you. It's a, there is a little bit of it to it. There's a little bit of it to it. I, I, but fundamentally, I do disagree because it's it's belittling. For example, Hebron or Yerushalayim. Oh no, those ones were like yeah, exactly. So like okay, Tzvat and Tzvat and Tveria are more modern holy cities. Let's put it that way. More contemporary. Holy cities. They don't have the same nobility letters as Yerushalayim and Hebron. Why? Because they're not mentioned in the Hamish? But, but, no, first of all, they're not. And so the early nobility is that the Sanhedrin sat there. Well, but as you see here on the map, yeah. you have other places as well mm-hmm. that they sat. So you have to couple it, so Tzvaz, for example, with the, the times of the Arizal and Rabbi Yosef Karo. Yeah, because it was like a crazy century. Like, I think a lot of times, if I had a time machine, and I could travel back a couple of centuries ago, not talking like, a, where would I go? Well, I have a couple of places, but one of the places would be Tzvah, 16th century. Because you could go and sing Kabbalah Shabbat together with the Arizal and his pupils in the fields of Tzvah, Friday night. And then after the meal, you can go and listen to a, an explanation on the Parsha by the Rabbi Moshe Alshech, Shabbos morning, you can hear a halacha class from uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo. And Shabbos afternoon, you can hear a Kabbalah class from Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. Yeah. Like, and that's one Shabbos. Okay, so what do we do tomorrow? <laughs> okay, like, wow. It's like in one Shabbat, you would get like, oh. Like, you wouldn't know what, to, they lived together in one place. So there was like a, an explosion of intensity. Uh, so Tzvasya, Tveria, is already later on it's because that's where the pupils of the Baal Shem Tov settled. Rabbi Menachem Lovitebsk, Rabbi Aaron of Kalisk, and you have an, in the end, okay, Rambam, but that's not the reason why it was called the Holy City. You have until today in the old cemetery of Tveria, you have a whole plot, which is, is, a, is a sign on top, the plot of the disciples of the Baal Shem Tov. Sadiqim who were actually 
learning by the Baal Shem Tov, knew the Baal Shem Tov and then came to Eretz Yisrael. So that gave it, that. but yes, plus. I don't disagree. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's one aspect of it. So you see in the map of where Sanhedrin saw, so you see Tveria and then Tsipori. So Tsipori, that's what I mentioned before. That's where the Mishnah was written. If you go the map that is below it, Babel, Babylon, if you look at the really small scale map, you see the Middle East. You see a little bit where it is. Um, it, the map is not very clear, but if you look at the small scale map, you can still see the two rivers. Do you see the two rivers in the small scale yeah. map? Yeah. It's like the two small draw drawings going like this. Yeah. So that is, whatever is in between those rivers, that is what is called Mesopotamia. The land of the two, of the two, yes, yeah, Fertile Crescent. Fertile Crescent goes all the way from Egypt to, to Kuwait, the whole Crescent. Mesopotamia is the land of the two rivers. Literally that valley between the Tigris rivers and the Euphrates river. In between them, or, and all the cities on it. That place had been Jewish for the past okay, that's 400, 600 years. Almost 700 years. When Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, in the year 586, before the Common Era, destroyed the first temple, he exiled all the Jews to Babylon. That's the place. That's the region. The city of Babylon actually is not here, is here on the map. You see the city on the small, where you have the, the bigger map of Babel. You have to the, almost to the bottom right of the map, you have a city called Babylon. By the way, that city will later be destroyed by, by the Persians. Uh, it was supposed to be a beautiful city, most modern city with canals and, and irrigations and like an oasis of beauty, etc., uh, etc. Et well, although Yermio Hanavi Jeremiah has an interesting um, nickname uh, for the city, he calls it Babylon the Whore. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay, uh, that's a different. Uh, yeah, okay, he had some issue with the, the place. Apparently, you have to assume. Um, but yes, yes, exactly. So he's referring more to. The morality to the life ethics, etc., etc., etc. But technologically and socially, it was a beautiful city. <laughs> Babylon was a very advanced empire. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought all the Jews to that place. That place will become so Jewish. This land, Mesopotamia, between the two rivers, that Talmud will later say that whoever comes from a place between those two rivers need not prove his Jewish ancestry. You're born here, that's it. No one's saying, you need to serve my parents? No, I don't need. You're born there, you're Jewish. Can't be otherwise. It's like, it's, it's a Jewish land. Now, later on will be the story of the 
going back to Zion. But, and you might know this or not, I don't know, I don't know what you do or not know, but, so I'm going to mention it. Only 5%, 5% of Jews moved to Israel after the call of Cyrus to go and rebuild. Is that very small? Yes. Second base on 5%. Initially, afterwards, most probably they came. Trickling. Did people stay put or where did they go? They stayed put. They stayed in Baba. Sad. It is. Talmud will tell a story. Everyone went through something like super traumatic and like, all right, so you rebuilt your life. Why would you leave? It's also not easy to move that far. It is, it is. Especially back then, like travel was not an easy thing. No. If ever you want to live in Israel, if someone ever tells you, you know what, first get a job, get married, make some money, and then you'll move, call them on my behalf a liar. Why? Because then you won't. You won't. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying people didn't do it. But on a hundred people who will do it, uh, on a hundred people, one will do it. One of hundred who want, I mean. Hundred people want, one will maybe do it. Why? Because it's too difficult. You have your job, you have your flat, you have your house, you have your references. I'm not saying it's impossible. Thing is unlikely. Whereas when you do it young, it's more likely because you have more options in front of you. But anyways, but that's besides the point. Just going in your in sense saying it's hard to and also we're using it's hard to, to change places. But one second, but this is the call of Cyrus. Exile is over. Let's go back to our homeland. But you know what? Why, you, why don't you guys just go first and send us a postcard? We'll come in August. We'll come for Sukkot. And they did, by the way. They came for the holidays. And also the holy days. They came. The Talmud will tell a story. There was once, I don't remember the name. I should be ashamed of the fact I don't remember the name of the rabbi. Maybe it was Rish Lakish. I'm not sure. Who was walking on the banks of the Jordan River. On the Israeli side. Yeah, Reish Lakish. Yeah. But here's the different story. That, okay. now, I think it was Reish Lakish. And he was walking on the banks of the Jordan River. And uh, now I'm not talking about the story about his encounter with his brother-in-law. And, and he saw another rabbi who was crossing the Jordan River. And, you know, like crossing, walking, half swimming. And so he, came, he went down the bank and like lended his hand to help him out. And as he was... Talking to him, he asked him, where are you coming from? He says, well, I just came here from Babylon. I'm moving to Israel. So he almost let him, let, left his hand. He said, oh, I hate Babylonian Jews. <laughs> he said, I hate Babylonian Jews because the temple was destroyed. He's talking about the second one. Because of you. Because had you all come together, we would have been strong. And nothing could have moved us. But because so few only came, we built a temple that was not strong enough to lift us up. So it's all your fault. I, I, get, I get the guy was in I wasn't even born. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's your grandfather, your great-grandfather. It's someone in your family. Um, so 
Babylon was around. Now, how many Jews were living there? It's difficult to say, but a lot. It was the greatest Jewish community outside of Israel. Israel, up until that moment, is very important, this emphasis, is still the center of Jewish life, notwithstanding that the temple was destroyed. That's besides the point. It's like us today. I am already, not old, but I'm old enough to remember when America was the center of Jewish life. And Israel was this like place that you're like little brother place that you had to support with your white and blue tzedakah boxes. Uh, and like your, the annual Jewish pledge, etc., etc. That's not the case today. Israel is not considered like the little brother that you have to like support with blue and white boxes. Well, you can. I mean, you're still welcome to give money. Uh, but Israel is, is Israel in its own right. And Israel is the center today. It's the center of Jewish life. Number-wise, Israel might not have the majority of the Jewish people worldwide, but has the largest Jewish community already, something that was achieved a couple of years ago. We are nearing the 7 million Jews in Israel. Best estimates in America today is like six and a half. So it's the largest Jewish community. It might not be the 51%, but, but we're getting there. Because <coughs> Jewish, the Jewish population worldwide is estimated around 15 million, 15 to 16 million worldwide. So 7 million is not yet the majority. Yeah, one, a lot. A lot. Huh? It's not so many. There's well, the second largest in the world. Well, again, I, I remember, I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think like there's a couple of, of tens of millions of people in the five boroughs, right? Yeah. I don't know exactly the numbers. Like 10 million. 10 million? Okay. So I remember realizing that once, that if you would move let's say, all the Jews of Israel to New York, you wouldn't fill up New York. Yeah. And it gives you the scale of Israel. Yeah. Meaning, okay, yeah, yay, we're several million. Okay, you're not even as many as there are people in New York. And we're talking without the suburbs. We're just talking the five boroughs, okay? It's like, it's not, it's not, it's not so many. I mean, we feel happy about it, but it's, it's really not that many. It reminds me of this, this joke that was going on that the child, I don't know if I told you that, that the, it's a joke, but that during the Six-Day War, the Arab countries who had a special connection with the communist countries, they did, it's a different story why, uh, they called up the Chinese and said, hey, we're going to attack Israel, can you give us a hand? And the Chinese said, yeah, sure, so uh, what are we talking about? How many people are you attacking? And the Arabs said, three million, and that's in 1967. And the Chinese said, three million? Which hotel are they in? <laughs> like, three million people? Why are you calling me for three million people? Yeah. I, 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 like the Chinese say, we don't do retail. Like, we don't, we don't, like, we wholesale. Three million, that's, that's, that's the number of people we move when we have to build a dam. Or uh, something like that. Three million people, like, why are you bothering me with this? Huh? 
It's true, with 7 million Jews, barely 7 million. But we are today, my point is, today we are the, big, the Jewish center. Today there's no question, you're, you're young enough, Baruch Hashem, for, the, for you in your mind, where is the center of Jewish life? Oh, the center of Jewish life is Israel. Like, no questions asked. That's a fact. America. No, I mean, America is a big place, but it's not the center of Jewish life. Uh, a lot of Jews that live in America. So it's a big community. Well, you see, that's exactly how... But, but we don't have the Beis HaMikdash in Eretz Israel. Okay, but that's besides the point. Well, that was the case during Rabbi Yudah Nasi still. Israel is the center. Oh, you have a lot of Jews that live in Babylon. Okay, that's a big community. That doesn't make them the center. We were the center. So let's continue. Um... To the year 200, and, okay, 226, the Sassanid Empire controls Babylon. I don't want to expand on it for the moment. And 240, Shmuel was the Talmudic authority again. I, I want to skip that. I want to go to 254. Rabbi Yochanan, oh, Rabbi Yochanan, that's in Israel, was the leading Talmudic authority. And here we go to your brother in law's story. Rabbi Yochanan, the next big name on the map. Her life continued to strive, and to, to thrive, thrive in Israel. But there were difficulties. And they were also not religious Jews. Let's not kid ourselves, okay? They were also not religious Jews. The big particularity of our generation is the scope and the ideology that comes with being not religious. But the phenomena is nothing new. Of, I mean, the phenomena of having Jews not religious? No, that. That's been around for a long time. The particularity of the last hundred years is the scope and the ideology that comes with it. Meaning how many, and, and, and also that it became an ideology, not only as a way of life. Oh, it happens to be that I'm not religious, because oh, I can't be bothered. But what, you don't agree? Oh, I agree, I still can't be bothered. Uh, this is different. So it's not an ideology, it's just a, well, it's an ideology if I can't be bothered. But it's, not, it's like a half an ideology. Whereas Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism have ideologies. Saying, no, we don't have to do this, we shouldn't do that, etc., etc. Um, so, for you to understand, the dynamics of what's going on in the land of Israel, we're still living under Roman influence, but the Romans are less interested in the land of Israel anymore. Now, yeah, you have to understand something. We are beginning the decline of the Roman Empire. We're in the mid-third century. It's, it's, it's the beginning of the end. We not everybody sees it yet, but it's coming. It's there. The big age of Pax Romana, of the Roman Empire controlling the world that lasted for over 100 years, that's over. It's not, it, the cracks are showing here and there. Israel is a place of no real interest for the Romans, besides it being a passage place. It's just a crossroads. That's it. Um, but besides that, there's not a lot of wealth here, and there's not immense agriculture or things to be really uh, exploited. Whatever there was of richness were in the temple that was already looted 200 years before. So, okay, so what is their interest in Israel? Uh, zero. Honestly, zero. It's just part of the empire. Now, this is important to know, because when you live in an empire, when you live in a province, in a state, that belongs to an empire, but the empire has not a lot of interest in that region, that region will become the Wild West. 
you understand why? No. Why could be ignored? Yeah. So you're saying like anything goes there? Yeah. Like it'll go crazy. No, it, law, law, lawfulness, lawfulness. It would be taken into the hands of like local authority instead of local authority. They could be corrupt, and then you can have thugs and criminals and ban. And you name it, it becomes. If I say the names of certain countries, I'll be taxed as a racist. So I'm not going to say Mexico or Venezuela, etc., uh, etc. Et but 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 you. But try and get the, the picture. It's not that you don't have a central government. It's just not governing everything. But it's not governing a lot. And uh, there's, there's two. There's the official law and then there's the real law. Like what, what goes and what doesn't. So this becomes difficult because it's difficult to, pl to live in those kind of places. It, you don't have a sense of security. Um, it's a big problem. You don't feel that you're, you're being controlled. And I want to share with you this, this exchange that Sarah, you were referring to. This great Talmudic rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, was once also swimming in the Jordan River when the head of, you could call it a mob, a mafia mob of thugs, of bandits happened to pass over there and he, this, this person's name was Reish Lakish. And here comes one of the most intriguing stories of the Talmud. Because Reish Lakish sees Rabbi Yochanan, maybe they thought about maybe they should like shake him down a little bit. And like, then he's, like, he's a rabbi, what does he have on his tzitzis? Uh, like, what, what am I getting out of him? But he saw Rabbi Yochanan and actually he was taken by Rabbi Yochanan's physical beauty. I'm going to tell you a very, very intriguing other anecdote. Rabbi Yochanan was considered and is told to have been so beautiful that he had been asked by women that he should sit in the street close to where the mikvah is so that when they should leave the mikvah, before they should reunite with their husbands, they should be able to see his face so that the vision of his beauty should be imprinted on their future child. By the way, this idea, this idea of what you see after a mikvah might leave an imprint on the fetus is something that is written in the holy books. But I'm not going in there now. But they, he was at, and he did it. I think that's awkward. That's an awkward uh, job description. Like looking for a beautiful man to sit outside of a mikvah. Rabbi Yochanan? Yeah. Rabbi Yochanan used to sit outside of the mikvah, learning and allowing, allowing people to contemplate, women to contemplate his beauty. What is his full name? Yosef Benoit? No, no, Rabbi Yochanan. No. Just Rabbi Yochanan. He's later on, he's in the Amaraim. He's towards the end. Oh. So, coming back to the story, Reish Lakish sees him swimming in the river, and Reish Lakish sees that he's a rabbi. And you know, rabbis, you know, there's this religious guys all about sneers and behaving, blah, blah. So boring. Uh, and he says, ah, oh, if only you would have given your force what you have 
to women, oh, you would have been king. Now, you say that to a rabbi, usually he should answer, Chutzpah, how do you talk? You should scream at him. Say, what would you say? You're such, you're full of, your head is full of debauchery. You name it, etc., etc., etc. Go away from here. Low life. Lewd person. Etc. No, Rabbi Yechanan keeps his cool and says to Reish Lakish, he saw Reish Lakish, this oh, strong person who was leading people, he said, and if only you would have put your strength into learning Torah. You tell me I should have put my, my, um, what you call them, my qualities to use with women? Well, you should have put your qualities to use with Torah. And eventually they came to, he was like, Rish Lakish actually was quite surprised by the, uh, like, the, uh, how should I say? Banter. Huh? Banter. Banter, you say, yeah. what does it mean? Banter means like the back and forth kind yeah, of Yeah, yeah. He most probably expected more like a rabbi to become like, oh, right? Becoming all like freaking out, like, what, what did you say? No, here's this rabbi, not freaking out. He's okay, you say I'm beautiful, okay. I could have my luck with them, it could be. But you know what, let's talk about you. What about you? You give advice to others. Did you ever think what you're doing in your life? What are you doing in there? Going, just being a thief of the high roads and so what? You're not doing anything with your life. You know what you could do with the strengths that you have? Like real stuff you could do. And eventually they came up to some kind of pact where where Rish Lakish actually asked him, he said, wow, you're so beautiful. You have a sister? <laughs> and Rabbi Yochanan says, yeah, actually I do. If you want to meet her, you have to commit to learning Torah. <coughs> and eventually he will, and they will get married. So it's like, yeah. so it's like, hey, wow, those rabbis were interesting people. That's not the image we have sometimes. Uh, like cheeky things were going on over there. Uh, yeah, all kosher, all kosher, but still, like, okay, interesting. Uh, eventually, by the way, Reish Lakish did marry the sister of Yochanan and became brother-in-laws. And Reish Lakish became one of the leading Talmudic authorities. The reason why I told you the story is because it does show a lot about the reality of the social conditions. As I said before, that you can have groups of bandits, of criminals, going on like a road, ripping off people, and like even rabbis were being um, in a way as, uh, assaulted, not necessarily assaulted, assaulted, but maybe, maybe he would have seen someone with more possessions on him, he most probably would have taken his money, uh, and so on. The situation in Israel is not getting better. And that's where rabbis, and it starts in Israel, decide, and I told you last week that, to do Mishnah 2.0. Remember what I told you last week about Mishnah 2.0? Mishnah 2.0 means we have to continue that what Rabbi Yudha Nasi did, but we have to expand it a million times. Because Rabbi Yudha Nasi wrote it in a very concise way, did not explain things, and did not develop them. It's enough for future teachers to have it as a, a, a kind of a hard copy of the essentials of Judaism, like in the cloud, see what I mean? A hard copy, 
but it doesn't give you the whole vibe of your whole operating system and of everything you need. It's just like the most essential things were preserved. But still, if it's a new computer and you have to reinstall things, you'll still be very busy. Because only like the most fundamental things were preserved. But you'll still have to reinstall certain programs and report certain settings, etc., etc. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to reprogram a new computer and download the new programs, etc., the fact that the cloud has all your files, you get the problem? Yeah. You know what to do with that. Yes, I have all my files are barked up. Yeah, but that's not enough. I don't know how to access them. And I can't get this computer to work. I can't get this operating system to work. I don't know how to download the files. It's a little bit comparison of what I'm talking about. The Mishnah was the files in the cloud. It's not the operating system. Come the rabbis and say, we have to elaborate on it. How? Well, we will go through every single Mishnah and we will start talking with the Mishnah. We will put down in writing the discussions that we always had orally in the study houses. We will put those discussions down in writing. The first Mishnah tells me, when do we start to learn Kriyat Shema? Says the Talmud, aha, uh -huh. where does it say that we have to learn, that we have to say Kriyat Shema to begin with? You see what the Talmud does? He takes you by the hand. It's only when do you criteria. You remember what I told you last week? Rav Yudad Nasi writes the Mishnah in a way that supposed that people have prior knowledge. I gave you an example that he starts off teaching Shabbat by saying carrying on Shabbat can be done in two different ways, which actually could be four different ways. Like that's like, what? Like start, start structurally. Now the Gemara is not going to correct that, but is going to explain. The Gemara is going to do three things. One, explain and corroborate the Mishnah. Who says, how do we know, why is it this way, etc., etc. Then, so three things. One, explain and corroborate. Two, expand. The Gemara is going to say, aha! But what happens if instead of uh, the person would have done uh, Mishnah doesn't talk about that. What do you do then? And then the, the Talmud will have a discussion. This rabbi will say, well, in that case, it's exactly like the Mishnah. Same thing. The other is not, not the same thing. This is like this because, uh, but here is different. Oh, I'll bring you proof. No, I'll bring you proof. And you're privy in the Talmud. You're privy to that dialogue. Who wins? Well, there also is all kinds of rules. The one who has the last word to begin with, meaning the one who proved this point and could not be countered, is a kind of okay checkmate. Like I, I explained my position, and you at the end didn't have a counter. Okay, and that counts. That means to say that that person made his point in a more valid way than the other opinion. Or sometimes it goes based on majority. There's different opinions, and they, are, they can't counter each other, or they can't prove their point to each other. You know, they both like, have valid grounds. Yeah, I can't, I can't actually draw it well, because I'm not good at 
So either the, the, the conclusion will come by logic, whoever made his point more valid, or will come by majority, sometimes senior, senior, seniority. seniority, sometimes seniority uh, also prevails. Meaning that professor, professor, master, so-and-so says A, and young uh, teacher says B, Professor Woods. Yes. What? No, because uh, one second. That's provided that no one, no one was proven wrong. Okay. Meaning they both made their case, and I still maintain that it's six, and then I maintain it's nine. And there's no actually you can't say that someone is wrong because it actually all depends. And then sometimes majority or seniority will will establish yes, because there is a rule that okay he has more knowledge, he has more experience. And if he says it's a nine, then it's a nine. I was like, why? I know sometimes that's a rule that we less might appreciate, but uh, but I said the Talmud does three things. So the third thing the Talmud does is morals, ethics. The Mishnah doesn't have the soul of Judaism, <coughs> has the law. Where is the soul of Judaism? I will I will always repent rem, remember. How, high, how astonished I was when this person that, that was making tshuva and I knew in my community in France came up to me and said, Rabbi, I'm looking for a good book that tells me what Judaism is about. I said, okay. Well. He said, no, because I bought one, but I, I, I really don't understand what Judaism is about. I said, what book did you buy? He tells me he bought the abbreviated Shulchan Aruch in, in French. Which is like, take your right hand, take your left hand, put your right shoe, do hamotzi. Yeah, yeah, that's not a good book to know what Judaism is about. He said, no, because he's saying, I'm going through the pages and I don't understand, but what are we talking about? Like, you tell me, you do so. To, yeah, that's a book of law. A book of law will not get you. It's like, imagine a person will learn in America, will learn the civil code, or the whole legal code in America. He will almost still, although a lot of the laws come from it, he will still have zero knowledge 
of American history and culture. He just knows rulings. Like, you have, one second, you have to know history, the, 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 the French, the British, the Spanish, like where, who, what, when, how, wars, like first war of independence, civil war, you name it, like constitution, that, uh, declaration of independence, like you can't get that from the legal code. The legal code is not going to teach you anything. You don't understand anything about this country from the legal code. You won't understand the country, the culture, the history. You have to go to the books to teach that. Mishnah is the legal code. Okay, doesn't give me the vibe of Judaism. Moral and ethics, that's the third thing. The Talmud explains, corrob corroborates the Mishnah. B, expands the Mishnah to cases that were not discussed. And one of the big question marks, like, where sometimes you say, oh, okay, Mishnah did not discuss it because it was being brief. And sometimes you have things like, huh, Mishnah does not mention Hanukkah. Not a word. Which is actually still puzzling up until today. It's not a good answer. I've looked it up again and again. Not a good answer. Um, you want to hear the, the most plausible answer, but you might not like it. That's the most plausible answer. It was a Rabbi Yudha Hanasi's personal ban on the house of the Hashmonoim that did not give back royalty to the house of David, to whom he, he belonged. <coughs> he said, people will talk about it. I'm not talking about them. I feel like also it was like recent enough that like he probably wasn't concerned about people forgetting that one. Yeah, exactly. No one is going to forget that one, and I don't feel like... Everyone already knows exactly what it's about. Yeah, but he does talk about Purim. That's a little further back. Uh, I, there is some credit to the thing. I don't want to talk about the Hashmanayim, but it does sound a little bit petty on the other hand. Like, so what, this is like a personal thing? Like you're not bringing... Maybe it's a little bit of both. There's a little bit personal also with religious values. I they mean, took, I feel like it's not so petty considering the entire political Gate, like, yes, so, exactly. what was going on and how that was a problem. I agree, I agree, I agree. But it's still surprising because you do have a lot of halachas on Hanukkah. How do I, and we have machlokas that we know of, Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. How do we know? Because they are in the Breitot. They are in other transcripts that Rav Chia had that did not make the final cut. Huh. You get it? One second, this is in the transcripts of Rav Chia, yeah. One second, so Rabbi Yudha Nasi saw this, uh-huh. And? Next. Another topic? Uh, okay, interesting, right? Hanukkah, it's a holiday. We have Lava Lachas, what if Hanukkah comes on, 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 on Shabbat? Halel, Kriyata Torah. You could do at least a chapter, a whole chapter on Hanukkah. And decided. The Gemara will talk about it, not in Europe, but the Gemara. So the Talmud will start, and I want to finish the class with this. Talmud will start with Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan is the one that sets Talmud into motion, meaning the decision we now have to write down. He like, I don't know. Okay, I said Mishnah 2.0. Let's find another word. The. No, it's not a second edition. It's more than, I said three things. Yeah. Explanation is only one thing. Explanation, expansion, and agadata, which will be morals and ethics, which is a whole world in itself that Mishnah didn't even touch upon. We have like to do the more full works. I feel like it's almost like zooming in the lens. Zooming in the lens. Like, 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's like almost the full works. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say you did find online a very well detailed, but still summarized version of a book you were supposed to read. It can still hold in class when you'll have to explain it, because it was actually very good. You never read the book, uh, but it's still very well. But Rabbi Yochan said, let's read the book. <laughs> yeah. Rabbi Yudha Hanasi wrote the summarized version of the book. A detailed one, enough. You, you, know, like, you can get a, you can get a B, B or maybe even an A. Depends on the teacher. Uh, you, can, you can slide away with it, but you don't actually know the book. You don't really know the book. If I start becoming picky with you, going into details, you're done. Because you don't know the book. You just know this, the, 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 the summarized version? The, the, the spark notes? Huh? Yeah. Spark notes? Yeah. So you don't really know the book. Mm -hmm. So I, if I go start picky and ask it like more detailed questions, you'll draw a blank. I don't know. I didn't know they died. What would you mean they didn't die? That was the most saddest moment of the book. Yeah, but in the details, it didn't come up. Uh, okay, that's it for today. Have a good job, Liz.